Well, welcome. I am uh, glad to, to be able to open up the Word of God to you. You know, sometimes we can sit and, and we, pr- we pray and we forget that the early church, because they understood who Jesus was and what he had done, and they told him to, uh, them, Jesus told them to wait for the coming of the Spirit, they actually had a 10-day a prayer meeting. Can you imagine that? 10 days of prayer. We didn't pray for 10 days. It might have felt a little long to you. But we do have uh, that hope um, and that wonderful joy to be able to enter into God's presence. Well, as we look at a get into a new series um, that'll take about half a year, it's called Tree Spirituality. And the idea is to engage the core of what we believe, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what its ground is in, what are the practices that we do, what's the life we need to live. This is what we're going to be exploring, found all throughout the scripture. But I wanted to start with Psalm 1. Before I read that and get into it, though, I have to ask you a question. When was the last time that you got into a car with a destination in mind, but had absolutely no plan on how you were going to get there? Right? You probably haven't done that if it was outside of your familiarity, right? Like you're not going to take a trip to Florida unless you've been there so many times and you know where it is without planning out where you're going to go, where you're going to stop, right? So... Why not, though? What's wrong with that? Just get in the car and start driving. Well, probably there's four outcomes, a lot, a lot more. Right? You don't, one, you don't get there, right? Like, get your, you don't get there. You might run out of gas. You might get there late. You might stop at the wrong place. Um, you might get completely lost. You run out of gas, and there you are in the middle of nowhere, and you have nowhere where you're going and no idea how you're going to get there. See, we plan how we get there because we want to guarantee that we will get there, right? So not many people like to fly by the seat of their pants, do they? Like, you know, I, by the way, that expression, I looked it up, it came from an actually an airline pilot who was really not supposed to be flying without talking to people and getting a plan, and he got in the plane and he flew. And the idea was all that he had was what he had with him by the seat of his pants. Anyway, I found that a little bit fascinating, right? Can you imagine getting in an airplane and not really knowing where you're going to go? Probably not. So yet, though, many of us live the Christian life this way, right? And sometimes it's even worse. At least in our car trip analogy, the people knew where they were going, right? Like, hey, I want to go to Florida. But often, all we know as Christians is that we're supposed to be going on a trip somewhere, and we have no idea even where that trip will lead us. This is why it's a way for many Christians it is, and so we know that we are supposed to be disciples, right? We know that. And yet, many of us don't even have a working definition of what a disciple is. If I asked you today what's a disciple, could you define it for me? Interestingly enough... In your 
pastor profile for when you were searching for a pastor, and now I'm here, praise the Lord, it said that you had two top things, shepherding and discipleship. But what is discipleship to you? What does it look like to you? Do you know? Could you define it? So you've asked me to come to disciple you, but do you know what it is? I would argue, and you may know. I don't know if you know that yet. I mean, we'll find out. But the reality is, is, is that most Christians don't actually know. I ask them, and it's blank look, like deer in the headlights look. I don't know what a disciple is. I mean, yeah, okay, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Well, great. But is it more than that? Is it that? How does it look, right? So um, the real question is this. You might say a disciple is one who follows Jesus, and I would say you're right. But here's the question. What would you say a disciple does? Well, you say, oh, well, that's easy. In Matthew 28, I'll give you that. Fine, but then how? Does that make sense? So um, my question for us is this. How can we even begin our journey if we don't know where we're headed? This is why I'm doing this series, by the way. Because I want us to know where we're headed. I don't want to get on a bus and not have the driver know any idea where that bus is going. And I hope you want to know where the bus is going. So, throughout the next half of a year, we're going to make sure that we know what a healthy, healthy, maturing disciple is. Not just a disciple as an abstract concept, but a healthy, maturing disciple is, and how we become one of those things, one of those people. We're going to map out the path of discipleship in very clear and practical ways. So what is a disciple? Well, before we answer that question, let's read Psalm 1 and then get a brief background and dive into it. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. John Calvin said that the Psalms are the an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In other words, you can find anger, fear, joy, happiness, delight, uh, anxiety, depression, everything in the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Um, he says, continues and said, draw, they draw each of us to the examination of himself in particular in order that none of the many troubles of which we are subject and of the many vices which we do a lot of may remain hidden. In other words, the Psalms have this shining light thing that peers at us and shows us 
where our shortcomings are. Um, so, Psalm 1 is a fitting preface to the whole book of Psalms. It begins by contrasting two ways. A way of happiness and a way which ultimately, by the way, leads to fulfillment and joy. And another way that leads to eventual ruin. Jesus talked about these two ways. The wide, the narrow way in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. But in this psalm, we see the wide way in the picture of a wicked person, a person who loves themselves. The narrow way is pictured as the wise person who is really a lover of Christ, and it ultimately asks us the question, which one are you? Which one are you? If we want a blessed life, a happy life, Psalm 1 is going to give us guidance and direction. It shows us what a healthy disciple of Jesus actually looks like. So let's dig in. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So happiness comes from God's word. Instead of following sinners, we follow Jesus. Instead of following sinners, we follow Jesus. That's what verse 1 shows us. The psalm says, oh, how blessed. In the original language, it's actually an exclamation. Oh, how happy is the man. It's like, that guy, that gal, they're happy. The word there is showing us the idea of one who doesn't take the path of wickedness, that they are extremely happy. Isn't happiness really what the world is searching for, right? We try to find it in sports. We try to find it in our families. We try to find it in work. We try to find it in entertainment. And so if there was an answer to how we can get it, shouldn't we bend our ear and listen? Psalm 1 is going to tell us the true secret to happiness. And it isn't simply doing anything you want and everything you want and having everything you want. In fact, this kind of path is shown as a path of wickedness away from true happiness. This path looks like this. Are you ready? First, they walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. So you just kind of forget God and you sort of walk in it, right? Like you're just kind of getting accustomed to it. You're, you're there, right? Their evil is practical. It's kind of becomes, starts to be a little habitual. It's like, well, I did that yesterday. I did that today. Second, they are habituated to evil and stand in stubbornness in the way of open sinners who willfully violate the law of God, the commandments of God. So it goes from this, yeah, I'm here, to I'm here, right? Then third, they become teachers and tempters of others. That's the, that final, they sit in the seat of scoffers. They want everybody to sin just like they do. But the psalmist tells us that this is a fast road to emptiness and frustration, and ultimately to judgment, as we'll see at the end. But then we see in verse 2, but his delight, the blessed man, right, who doesn't do these things, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
So here you go. Delighting in God brings permanence. Permanence. And we'll see that. Instead of being blown away, just they stand firm in Jesus. You might have caught the reading in Matthew, how it was connected, I hope, about the rock and those things that drive the, the shaky ground away. The righteous here is not described in terms of his associations. You notice that the wicked is described in terms of his associations, right? Who he's around, how he acts, things type of like that. But rather, the righteous is described as someone who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Really, the happy man, woman, follows Yahweh, the I am, his law, or in the Hebrew, you've probably heard this term before, the Torah. Okay, the Torah. David says the Torah of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul in Psalm 19.7. And that the man of God delights in it. What does it mean to delight in the Torah, the law of the Lord? And what is the law of the Lord? Well, when David wrote this psalm and others, do you know what he understood Torah to be? The Bible. The scripture that he had up to that point. David saying, my delight is in this. This word. The inerrant, infallible, and we're going to talk about this in Sunday school next week, plenary, verbal, inspirated, inspirated, I don't know how to say it, it's a tough, tough one to say, Word of God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word, every part in its fullness is fully inspired by God. That's what David's delight is in. God's voice to us. The, the, as Paul said to Timothy, the, the theonoustos, the breath of God. Do you understand that? That the word of God is the breath of God. That's what it is. Not just a bunch of words from man. That's why David delights in it, because it's not man's words. Who wants to hear what I have to say? You only want to hear what God is saying through me, correct? I pray that's why you called me here. Because you want to hear the voice of God to you, right? Simply as I relate it, as I hold Christ out. That scripture is what does that, and that's why David delights on that. Delights in the law of the Lord. So, all, what is it to us then? Well, it's the law of the Lord that we are to delight in is all the scripture. 66 books of the Bible, right? Is it 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New? All of those books we delight in. See, to the Hebrew mind, Torah, the law of God was a way of life. God's way of life, the way to know God, the way to be fully human. And with David's delight so much, you can see why his psalms being the anatomy of every part of the soul, David is fully human. You have so much of his writings, and as you read the psalms, you can see the full humanity. I'm depressed, I'm scared, I'm, I'm, I'm joyful, I'm, I'm in pain. Because he's alive, because he's truly human, because the word of God shows us what it is to be a true human. In fact, I would just do a little wordplay and say, the word of God, Jesus Christ, the word, is really what it, who showed us 
what it's like to be truly and fully human. What David delighted in was, wasn't simply something to study. Listen, if you approach this thing as just something to study, you've missed God completely. Do we study it? Yes. But to know God, to experience God, right? So we don't look at the Bible like a painting on a wall. Observe it. Oh, it's nice. It's beautiful. It looks good. We don't look at it just like it's a piece of poetry. Oh, it's so beautiful, the language and everything else. No, we are convinced by the Holy Spirit that it is God's eternal, it's God's word that is eternal. So that doesn't change. Yesterday, today, the same. God is the same. And his word is the same as well. The Bible is the place where we come to know God through Christ. We delight in knowing God through Christ because Christ is the word of God. So now here's the deal. It says we meditate on the law, meditate and delight really, and knowing and meeting God both day and night. Do you know what this word meditate is in the original language? It means to growl over like a lion. Have you ever watched nature videos and seen what a lion does to the bone? What it does to an animal? And it gets it down to where there's nothing of nourishment left in that bone. The law of the Lord you meditate on day and night. You suck the marrow out of it. You get every part of it. You find your life, your sustenance, your strength for the day, your strength for the week, your strength in hard times from the word of God because the word of God needs to be meditated on, needs to be chewed on, needs, needs to be digested deeply and you need to be like a, a lion and say, nobody's going to keep me from the word of God and growl at anybody who tries to keep you from the word of God or, or, or cause you to look at other vain philosophies or empty deceit, which is what Paul says in Colossians that we look to Christ, we look to his word. And so the purpose of meditation here is to absorb and feast on God. When you read the word, you are to be feasting on Christ. So when God sets out a table before you in the presence of your enemies, you come and you just feast. And you raise your glass that he pours out that overflows and you raise a toast to your king and say thank you for your word and thank you that I can feast upon you. The purpose of meditation is very important. It's not to demonstrate intellectual superiority. The fool hears Jesus' words and actually fails to put them into practice. The wise man hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice. Whereas that fool, he just hears the words and goes away. We hear the word and make it part of our lives. So what is the difference between these two ways that we've looked at? The wicked man loves sin. The righteous man loves God. The wicked man loves the ways of sin and chases after them. The righteous man loves God and follows God, pouring over God's word because in God's word is where Jesus Christ reveals and isn't that what you want? You want Jesus? You were saved into him. You are united with him. So what else is there for you? That's what you want to hear. 
You don't want me to give you 17 steps on how to be a better person. I hope not. You want to hear Christ, right? Like, like I don't remember where it was, but somebody said, um, a professor of mine said at some point that he imagined that there was an, a, an elderly woman in the back of the church that says, yes, but show me Jesus, or where is Jesus? If you just preach and teach stuff and not Christ, you miss the entire point of your life in Christ. And that's what you want to hear. So, um, the psalmist here is talking about blessedness, happiness, not as a reward for doing good, but as a result of simply living it. Now, verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So now as you look at verse 3, the psalmist essentially shows us the result of pursuing or not pursuing God. Okay, ready? Like, here you go. Pursuing God, reading, studying his word to meet God himself, to know him, you got two choices, okay? The path of, of wickedness, the path of righteousness. The path of righteousness is you become like a tree, firmly rooted and grounded in it by waters, so they cause you to grow and stability and strength and life. And, or you can be like the chaff and just phew, be gone. That's the, that's the choice. And that's the difference between living your life in God, in his word, because you're trying to find Christ there, and then basically living for your job and your house and your car and your kids or whatever the case may be. None of those things are evil to have and to take care of. But the problem is, is if they're the point of life, you will have no happiness because you don't have the point of life, right? God made those things for you to enjoy them, right? so that you would know him more and find more joy. And if the creator made all these wonderful things that we enjoy so much, how much more beautiful is he than that? And his point is, see the beautiful shiny things and then look up to the one who's even brighter than that. So, that first picture of this fruitful, flourishing tree and the second of the chaff really is where our introduction to this tree spirituality series lies. What we're going to do is look at the life of a disciple as one that is like a tree. That is planted in the right place, producing the right fruit at the same time. Can you see that in the text? And yields its fruit in its season. Right? Okay, it's going to yield the fruit at the right time. The right fruit in the right time. You do not want an apple tree make, having plums, right? That's the wrong fruit for that tree. Now, a plum tree having plum, hey, right? But not an apple tree. And you also want it to, the, the fruit to come at the right season of the year so that it doesn't come out in winter and just die right away and get all, have all sorts of things happen. Or at the wrong time when it's so hot that it just withers away and is gone, right? So at the right time, in the right place, that's what the, 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 the man and woman of God who is planted like a tree does. So the blessed or happy man, happy woman is like a tree. And this tree is actually planted strategically, right? Where is it planted? In the desert? No. And by the way, in the original language, it's actually transplanted. So there's a whole lot of imagery there. Like you are taken from here where ways of wickedness and you are transplanted to a place of life next to the rivers of water. It's just an aside. So this is a great picture, right? 
of, of, of a tree being by water so that it can not only survive, but thrive, right? So this is what a great picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus is. We are like a tree rooted in good soil. We are like a tree that is solid and growing slowly but surely. It's rooted, it's stable, and it's not like we're in this crazy race either, right? What's going to happen to a tree if it just shoots up like that? It's not going to be rooted, right? Trees root themselves and grow slowly over time. That is what your life is like as a Christian. You can get frustrated with God at the slowness of your sanctification, Right? And you can cry out to him and explain that to him, that you're frustrated you're not growing as fast. And that's good, right? Because you want to grow faster. But you want to grow in such a way that you, your growth is solid and will last. Right? Because Jesus had a parable about that somewhere, didn't he? Like, throwing seed, and there's some seed that's throwing on the, 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 the rocky ground and springs up right away. Oh, yay, we love Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they just fall away. So rooted and grounded in the reality of who you are in in Christ. So we are like a tree that is solid and growing slowly, but surely rooted and stable. And so the truly righteous person is like a tree that grows and changes slowly, gradually, but the growth is long lasting and that growth is permanent. Permanent. The person who delights in God and in his law gets spiritual nourishment from Jesus Christ, right? Just like a tree soaks in the water from a stream, the land could be dry, the air could be hot, but if the tree is next to the water, oh, it's going to grow. Because it's drawing nourishment from that stream. So, thus it will prosper and yield fruit. Those who delight in the word of Christ yield the fruit of the Spirit. As I was going over the sermon this morning, and I was praying over it and thinking about it, something came to me that I didn't originally draw out, and it's this, the upper room discourse of Christ. In John chapter 15, verses 1 to 17, you see a similar picture, except it's not a tree, it's a vine. And Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. And what does Jesus say in that? He says that, abide in me and my words in you. Right? The law of the Lord, the words of God abiding in you. Jesus is saying the same thing in Psalm chapter 1. And now Jesus says, without abiding in me, you can do most things? Is that what it says? What does it say? You can do nothing. Nothing. There is no way for you and I to produce Christian fruit unless you abide and I abide in Jesus Christ. A grape branch has to be connected to its vine in order to bear fruit, and so a fruit tree must have a root system that gains nourishment and strength in order to live and produce fruit. And so the fruit tree of Psalm 1, just like every tree, must have a root system that is connected to a water source to live. And that source of water is Jesus Christ who said, I am the living water. Running water. That's what that living means. You know that, right? Like, you, ever, you like stagnant water? Do you like to go into a pond and take sips out with algae in it and stuff? No, right? Jesus' water is running water. It's living water. It's active. It's moving. It's fresh. There's no impurities in it. That's Jesus. 
Okay, so we must be rooted and, 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 and grounded in our union with Christ, abiding in Christ. Why? We must be rooted and united with Christ in his love and grace, knowing that we are loved by the Father through Jesus Christ and so joined to him. Why? So that when the winds of life come, like we read from Matthew 7, we are on the rock. We are on the rock. And we remain. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described that life, right? The life in the kingdom. A kingdom-minded person is like that house that is built on a solid foundation, the work of Christ and the love of the Father. You know that's your foundation, right? The work of Christ, the love of the Father, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. A worldly-minded person is like a house that is built on the sand. When the storms of life come, or God's judgment, the kingdom-minded person will survive. Their life, their house will survive. But the person who's in the seat of the scoffers will not. Why? Because they, the people who are joined to Christ are joined to the way, the truth, and the life who lived and died for us. But because he is alive, he has raised us from the dead. And we are dead in him and raised with him. The worldly-minded person, though, they are joined not to the way, the truth, and the life, but the worldly-minded person is joined to a thief, a liar, and a murderer, Satan himself. Back to the parable. Jesus then, after telling, says that whoever hears his words and puts them into practice is wise. They are those who have built their foundation on the rock Jesus, they are the ones who are true disciples and are like trees. They will be healthy disciples that have the roots to sustain the storms of life that will keep them from falling. But the wicked are not so, or like the chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked aren't even close to being rooted, right? You, ever, you know what they did with the wheat and stuff, right? They would bang it, smash it up so that it was, the hulls were separated, and they would, on a windy day or a place where they would grow wind, they would take it and they'd throw it up in the air. And the good seed, the actual wheat in it, would fall back down on their little blanket or their big sheet that they used. And the chaff was, would float off away and it would just be trampled on by others and everything else. Jesus says, through this psalm, you see, you are like the wheat that, you know, in our lives, we get beat a little bit. I mean, as an analogy, it's a good one, right? Life is hard, but we're not the chaff. We are the seed in the inside because of our union with Christ, which falls down and is collected by God. And so the wicked person, their lives, and here's the, here's the deal. I want you to be, I want to be clear at this, right? Chaff is not good for anything. David's not mincing any words. He's saying those apart from Christ, they're not good for anything. Now, I'm not saying that unbelievers are not imaging God and are not good and valuable. That's not what I'm saying. But David's talking about the eternal state of these people, right? Because at the end of the psalm, what does it say? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, right? See, he's, he's moving from what the wind drives away in the very next verse. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So he's saying the, 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 the purpose of those who are apart from Christ at the end of time is to glorify God by God's wrath being poured out upon them. But they have no intrinsic value in anything other than that because they are not living as the man, right? 
who's walking in God. And they're ultimately the same as Satan in their final destination, right? Because they hate God and they don't want God. And so God gives them exactly what they want. You understand that, right? Everyone will get exactly what they want at the end day. For you who are united to Christ, you will get Christ. For the unbelievers who are apart from Christ, they will get exactly what they want. They hate him, they don't want him, and so they will be away. Our our trick is, and we'll go as we go along here, we don't know who they are. So you love people, and you walk, and you share the gospel with all people, and offer the free offer of the gospel without attachment or understanding of what you think and who you think is going to be go to heaven. The free offer of the gospel is to all mankind, right? And so you don't have to look and say, well, that person's a chaff. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. We're talking about, right, the ultimate end and what David's getting at. We're not talking about how you view your neighbor. Because Jesus said, love your enemies, right? So to be clear, I'm explaining you the scripture, but I need to put a little asterisk there and make sure that you don't go around talking about your neighbor's chaff, right? Does that make sense? Please don't do that. Don't think about them as chaff. You don't know that they're chaff. The wicked aren't listening to, the wor- to, to, the, 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 to God. Instead, they're listening to the world, to Satan, and those shouts that oppose what God teaches. The world says that to be, right, to be religious is foolishness, right? Religious people never have any fun or accomplish anything. This is what they say, the ones who sit in the seat of the scoffers. And if you want to get somewhere, they say, follow the fast track of sin. If you see what what you want, go after it. And while it may be true that religious people never have any fun or joy, it's not true that disciples of Jesus don't. There's a difference between a religious person and one who knows Jesus. Because the one who abides in Jesus, the vine, Jesus says in John 15, 11, that their joy will be full. Religious people may not have joy. And so if you are a religious person and you've been in the church a while and you don't know what it's like to know Jesus and to actually be joyful in him, then you may want to take warning in this psalm and you may want to say, I want that kind of joy and happiness And I say to you, embrace Jesus. And I give you the free offer of the gospel to come to him, you who are weary and heavy laden under the weight of religiosity. And come to him and find rest for your souls. For Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. Because he says, those who love me will keep my commandments. And my commandments are not burdensome, is what John explains when Jesus was in, the, in John chapter 13 was saying that I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Love is the essence of the Christian life. So joy is here. I'm offering it to you in Christ. Take it if you don't know that joy. Well, the ultimate destiny of the righteous and wicked is described in the last verse. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked perish. Isn't that interesting? He knows the way of the righteous. He knows how you're walking. He knows where you are. He sees you. He is with you, right? The perfect man pictured in the psalm is not David, though. Do you understand this? This man doesn't exist 
under ordinary generation. Who that you know, including yourself, has ever delighted in the law of the Lord this, with this intensity? No one, except for the man who was born of the Holy Spirit, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the happy man. So why are we unhappy? Because we aren't fully and completely uh, glorified yet. And so we can't have that, this kind of happy, the same kind of happiness until we live in, the, in our union, union with Christ and walk that out. And so when you look at this, it's telling you, hmm, yeah, if you're at all like me, you're like, I don't do that perfectly and in every way. So Jesus is the one who's the happy man. I can only imagine how happy Jesus must have been as a person. He was burdened, sure. He carried our weights and our sorrows. But I, cannot, I cannot imagine when on the Sabbath day, when he saw the man with the wither, withered hand, as he was healing him, knowing that the Pharisees were going to tell, tell him, he must have been so happy that he could restore a man back to the order of having a withered hand and seeing it like that. I cannot imagine how happy he must have been. The creation is the way as it should be. I've just restored it. That man is now living the way that he should be living with the hand that fully operates. You see, Jesus is the happy man. The bottom line of all that I've said is this. We must delight in what God has given up to us. This delight begins when we realize that God has given us Jesus. You delight in the law of the Lord. Who are you delighting in? Are you delighting in just the words in here? Or are you delighting in the person that is behind the words? You see? So, this delight begins in Christ. Our Savior, listen, our Savior was nailed to a tree so we could be like a tree. Our Savior was nailed to a tree so we would be like a tree. Our Savior was nailed to a tree that was cut down so that we would never be cut down. That we would abide forever. We can thrive as we follow and live for him and abide in him. I'm going to end with this and then look for an email because I don't have time to finish the application. But I'm going to get to the heart of what discipleship is, which is the point of the sermon. But I'm going to send out to you the application of this, okay, in your day-to-day life. I'll give you a three-sentence summary of it, and then I'll send out you the full, okay? So first, a disciple. What is a disciple? Quite simply, a disciple is a follower of Christ. Are you a follower of Christ? Okay? If you are, you're a disciple. So you should ask, what does a healthy disciple look like? Because being a disciple is good, but being a bad disciple is not as good as being a good disciple, right? So... Jesus talked about this a lot in the Gospels. Mark 1.17, Mark 8.34-38, Matthew 28.18-20. Discipleship, I like to define it, is directional, not destinational. Listen, Christianity is not Christianity. Go to a class and learn Christianity 101, 102, 103. Then you move to the 200s. And once you master that, then you move to the 300s. Then, now you get into your major, and now you're in the 400s. Oh, and now if you're really smart and you really love God, now you go get your master's degree. And oh, if you've got your master's degree, now you move to a doctorate. That's not, that's not it. It's directional. Pursuit of Jesus. 
pursuit of Jesus. Okay? Following him. It is about giving him first place in everything, going where he goes, listening to what he says, doing what he does, and teaching others to do the same. That's discipleship. You ready? It is putting him first above everything. Number one. Number two, it is going where he goes. So he directs your life. Number three, listening to what he says, reading his word, taking it in. And then number four, doing what he does. And then number five, teaching others to do all of those things, including telling others. So it's a multiplication thing. So if this is the way that Jesus defines discipleship, then how do we follow him and do it in a healthy way? Psalm 1 gave us this picture of a healthy disciple. It showed us the the reality that a healthy disciple looks like a tree. A healthy disciple delights in Christ and is deeply rooted in their union with him. So they are unmoved by the storms of life. It is like being planted by streams of living water, Christ. And it is like having healthy leaves that produce the right fruit at the right time. So I'll give you the brief summaries. First, we should exalt and treasure Christ because he truly was the happy and blessed man. Second, we should exalt and treasure Christ because we were cursed. We ran with sin. We sat in sin. Our judgment was sure, yet Jesus took our punishment and gave us his perfection. Third, we should proclaim this message of hope and excitement to those who are running and sitting in their sin. And finally, we need to live out the truth that is already in us. We can only do this by giving our lives over to the power of God in Christ Jesus day to day. I will send you out the stuff behind that, but that's the summary. Let me pray. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ is the truly happy man. Thank you that he is the one that we can abide in and bear fruit. We want to bear fruit. We want to be real disciples. We want to be followers of Jesus. But we can't do it without you. Oh, Lord, please, please make us your children who delight in you and who follow you in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.